difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a new release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Tasha Robinson. Keith Phipps. Rachel Handler. And behind the scenes, producer Genevieve Kosky. We're all firm believers in the idea that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and how it relates to a current release. Today, Mowage is what brings us together. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, uh, do you want to talk about this week's movie pairing? Sure. The beautiful new Andrew Hay movie, 45 Years, with Charlotte Rampling and Tom Courtenay, is about a long-married couple dealing with stressful revelations from the distant past. We thought it would be a good opportunity to look back at another film about the toxic dynamic between a long-married couple who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. While there's a big difference between the quiet tension between Rampling and Courtenay in 45 years and the bombs Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton lob at each other in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, both have a lot of insight into the stresses of relationships that have lasted for decades. Both are about old wounds that are reopened over the course of a short, intense period. In 45 years, it's the week leading up to a 45th anniversary party, and in Virginia Woolf, it's one boozy night between 2 a.m. and a dawn that can't come soon enough. Scott, how are we breaking it down? In the first half, we'll look at Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, how first-time director Mike Nichols brought Edward Albee's play to the screen, how Taylor and Burton brought the tension of their own famously fraught marriage to their performances, and what the film says about the institution of marriage, our capacity for illusion, and American society itself. We'll also share some feedback on our last pairing, Star Wars A New Hope and Star Wars The Force Awakens. Then, in the second half, dropping later in the week, we'll bring in 45 years and talk about the fascinating ways in which the two films intersect and diverge. Fasten your seatbelts, everyone. It's going to be a bumpy night. Bringing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from the stage to the screen was a daunting challenge on a couple of fronts. Edward Albee's play isn't very cinematic by any standard. It only has four actors, and it can be performed on a stage of any size. In fact, it was performed at my high school on a stage no larger than the modest-sized room we're sitting in right now. Also, the language in Albee's play shocked people on Broadway, and it was considered too filthy for the movies in 1966, just before American movies like Bonnie and Clyde opened things up considerably. The brilliant screenwriter Ernest Lehman, whose credits include North by Northwest and Sweet Smell of Success, opted to gamble by preserving the language in Albee's play. That challenged the boundaries set by the Catholic Legion of Decency and the MPAA, which had just appointed Jack Valenti, who would later be responsible for creating our current rating system. Despite a few tweaks here and there, Lehman's instincts paid off. The film was nominated for a record 13 Academy Awards. It won five, including Best Actress for Taylor and Best Supporting Actress for Sandy Dennis. Fifty years later, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is no longer shocking, but it certainly does sting. First-time director Mike Nichols and his cinematographer, the recently departed Haskell Wexler, shoot in a highly expressive black and white that sharpens the black comedy and turbulent emotions while putting the strongest possible emphasis on the four lead performances. Burton and Taylor star as George and Martha, respectively, and it's no mistake they share a name with America's first couple, George and Martha Washington. Uh, they live on a college campus. Martha is the college president's daughter, and George works in the history department, where he's failed to rise above the title of associate professor. George's failings, of course, are a very popular topic of conversation. At 2 a.m., George and Martha return home drunk from a party, but the night is far from over. 
Martha has invited Nick, a handsome new biology professor, played by George Siegel, and his wife, Honey, played by Sandy Dennis, over for drinks. The guests, expecting a nightcap and an exchange of pleasantries, instead walk into a buzzsaw. George and Martha are in the middle of an argument when Nick and Honey walk through the door, and as the evening wears on, the younger couple have their vulnerabilities exposed too. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the play and the film, came along during a transitional period in American culture, where social institutions were starting to crumble. The marriage between George and Martha is one of profound disappointment for both partners, who were haunted by long-standing personal and professional failings. That disappointment manifests itself in a night of heavy drinking, passive-aggressive and aggressive-aggressive barbs, cruel gamesmanship, and talk of their bouncing baby boy, who's celebrating a birthday tomorrow, don't you know? So I ask you, my fellow Next Picture podsters, truth or illusion? Does Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf still hold up as an era-defining achievement 50 years later? Tasha, what do you say? Well, I mean, in terms of the language, uh, hearing somebody say goddamn on screen is no longer uh, era defining and shocking. Um, but in terms of the filmmaking itself, I mean, you can you can really feel the dynamism of the era, like the, the discovery of what you could do with cameras like going on in this film. Wexler's cinematography uh, is just I mean, the, the, the lighting of the film is so exciting, I think, is so striking. I mean, I just this is one of those films where despite the really stagey origins, I really feel the filmmaking and that in and of itself just makes this film feel exciting like even if the the performances weren't so crackling even if the writing wasn't so tight this is a film where you can feel the filmmaking happening and you can kind of feel Mike Nichols discovering himself in this film I mean it was reportedly a really difficult shoot um, with some really demanding kind of spoiled actors making life hard on a, a first-time director but you still get the feeling that he really knew what he wanted to do with this film he may have had to, to fight with Wexler to get what he wanted and to get the look that he wanted. But you can feel the sense of discovery on the screen and you can feel the sense of, of daring and creativity on some of the stuff he does. Yeah, I mean, the way this is shot is is, is amazing. There's, and you know, all these sort of shifting loyalties and the way that the compositions kind of capture those. There's a couple of two shots where two people are in frame kind of looming over the person they're talking to and it's, and it's like a pack of an animals ganging <laughs> up like on, on Yeah, it is. It is. There's some real horror film elements in this too. It, it, it could have been very stagey and I never forgot I was watching an adaptation of a play, but I thought it was opened up in some really interesting ways. What about you, Rachel? I mean, I've, I watched this in college, and then I watched it again, obviously, this weekend. I watched it with my boyfriend this time, who I'm not married to, and suffice to say, we did not come away with any <laughs> wedding plans. Um, to me, it was very it was very disturbing and, ho- and a horror film on a totally different level, too, just sort of a horror film about marriage. Um, I think it's still just as disturbing and messed up as it must have been 50 years ago. I mean, it also just sort of ties into, like, today, looking at it today, we kind of have an image of the, like, the professor and the professor's wife on campus, like that couple entertaining a younger couple like I can think of like so many novels that have that kind of setting in it and you get this sort of like impression of like what that should look like based on a history of literature it should be like a very staid kind of thing where maybe like people are hopping from bed to bed like under the covers but they're probably going to sit down and discuss like literature and uh, like campus politics possibly in a very dry sort of way and this just goes so far away from what our expectations about the period were you know, the 50s transitioning into the 60s, like all of that, like rawness and confusion and the counter counterculture, like what was going on there is kind of reflected in the feeling of this uh, mm-hmm. this film. 
And I, well, of course, I think that Nick and Honey are expecting that kind of conversation <laughs> and, and immediately are hit in the face with something entirely different. And it's fascinating to me just, and again, this is all credit to Albie's play, just the, the, the way they're kind of um, lured in. I guess drinking helps, but just, but just how they become sucked into this, you know, sort of toxic environment and how, how it sort of triggers all of these revelations about their relationship too. And in a way, I, you know, I feel like, I feel like where we we, we end up their marriage is, is in far worse shape than, than uh, George and Martha's um, which is I think kind of functional in its way I guess we can probably talk about that, about so that later but I think it's kind <laughs> of hel- scariest part yeah it's not a healthy marriage exactly but uh, but it works I think uh, but we'll get into that a little bit later um, one thing I did want to follow up on though is just is the question of it being cinematic because I think it's you know first of all I I wonder if that is is that a bar that is important to you when we're talking about stage to screen that it be opened up in some way because that can be a sticking point um, with people like myself but but is it a sticking point for for you panelists I mean one of my favorite films is Glengarry Glenn Ross and that is a notoriously stage bound and like insular two set play that uh doesn't the the film version doesn't do a whole lot to open it up it like it moves a few things like outdoors but for the most part it is equally claustrophobic and it just it uses the claustrophobia and here I think you have the same sort of thing there's there is a lot of moving let's move this outside let, let's move this to the roadhouse and it helps open up the claustrophobia a little bit. But part of the dynamic of any stage play that's set up with a story like this is that they're playing off the claustrophobia and the feeling of being trapped. I mean, you kind of talk about how the younger couple get trapped in this situation. One of the things that fascinates me most about the narrative is how often it seems like they're going to leave and how often they get drawn back in in one way or another or forestalled from leaving or from separating from the other two. Um, I don't know. I mean, you can have a film uh, where Ryan Reynolds is on a box for 90 minutes and can't get out and can't see beyond the box if you can do that and still have a like a functioning story like i think you can you can have a stage play that sticks to like one or two locations on film and not have it matter what matters is the story and the performances and, and the direction well the direction i think is key though in this because as you talk about glenn and glenn ross i mean you compare that with something like the film version of american buffalo which is quite stayed uh, and the performances in that are just are dandy you know they're fine and it's a great play <laughs> but it's but it's just it's really pretty dead on the screen and that's that's a, a the fault of the director and and uh what really thrilled me about who's afraid of virginia wolf i mean shooting in black and white was was key and in in i think it really does focus the eye when, when it needs to and i think you can do a lot of dynamic things with lighting that really show up well in black and white but what impressed me the most in the, about the film was just the amount of movement in it and movement within the frame and and it, it, it's so and i think that's that kind of feeds into this atmosphere of, of destabilization and, and constant change and dynamism which is i think is which i think is absolutely critical um when you're going from from stage to screen because you can see especially I think almost in these these sort of like big stage musicals that we've been seeing on film you can just see how dead they are if they're not staged in an interesting way and this film is is fantastic as far as that's, that's concerned I think there's also the matter of of the 
the camera, the, especially there's a lot of deep focus in this film, and, and and you can see the detail and the clutter and and sort of the accumulation of their lives over the years and how messy that life has gotten reflected in in, in the way they live. And and you and you can just see how kind of ordinary it is. I I, I for some reason I I keyed in right at the beginning with Elizabeth Taylor opening up the refrigerator and pulling out you know like a old like chicken. a chicken leg to gnaw. And that's a, that's a great picture of domesticity there. You know, coming home at two a.m. a little bit drunk, going to the refrigerator. And eating. Eating, eating some mm-hmm. cold chicken so it does have those it, it does the space certainly feels lived in and, and again cluttered and unsettled which uh, feeds into the drama quite a bit but what else about the style of this picture tasha well i mean one of the big things is uh, the the actual focus like keith mentioned the deep focus what i noticed even more than that is how often the camera goes out of focus mm. especially when the camera is is following somebody around like when it's following nick around outside at night and the out of focus moments like in another film might be seen as this reminded me so much of, of things like victoria where it's just one unbroken take and you're just you're following these people who are locked in a situation together and no one can leave. But every time it went out of uh, the camera went out of focus in in this, it felt to me like this is what the inside of their brains must feel like mm. after an increasing, increasingly long and draggy night of lots of drinking and no sleep. And especially when he's stumbling across the yard and the camera keeps going out of focus. It felt to me like he was about to pass out and like it was a very subjective feeling. Well, it's whenever one of them feels out of control or feels things are veering out of the control, that's when it would get fuzzy, I would notice. And there's a scene at the end, I don't remember exactly when, when uh, Elizabeth Taylor's in the background sitting by the window and she's completely fuzzy and he's completely clear, which I thought was really, there's so many visual cues like that throughout the movie that I thought were really interesting. Yeah, some of the other uh, visual cues that that become really interesting are just like the kinesthetics of where people are positioned, Mm -hmm. you know, which plays back into that, that staginess of how you move people just so often. God, what what strikes me more than anything is just this moment really early in the film where Martha is sitting in the easy chair and like she reaches across and put her puts her hands on Nick's knee and George is in between them in the background, like perfectly in focus. And all you can see is his eyes as he notices this. And there's so many different like positioning things that they do. They all get up from the couches uh, at like at, shortly after that, I think probably to get another drink. This is one of those films where if you played the drink when they drink drinking game, you would oh die. God, you would, I was thinking that. I would be dead, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when they come back down, she sits down on the couch and positions Nick next to her. And then there's no place for his wife to sit with him. And there's no place for George to sit at all. Just so much done in this film with where people are positioned in relation to each other. So how many of these nights do you imagine that they've had in the past? Because I do, I was thinking about that too when when she goes upstairs to change. It seems like George is like, this is this. I know what's going to happen next. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, I he know. says she never changes. You guys, you should be honored. She never changes. Oh, okay. So I do, but I do think that it's kind of like this thing they, in my mind, at the end of it, it's sort of this thing they do constantly. And I don't know if it's any different any other night. That's what's fascinating. And all of the, and and they know how to play these these games that they keep bringing up. I get the feeling though that it is it gets pushed too far. I mean, and the the I don't know. If, I guess we're getting into spoiler territory now, but I'll, I'll be vague. The, the moment at the end when she really lays into him for for crossing. A I think that's the moment when what they're doing stops being foreplay because I sort of get the sixth sense that that this is in some ways something they're doing for each other and it's integral part of their marriage in 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 a way uh, up until that point. The boy. The boy. <laughs> I think until, we can talk about this. We can talk about. Old. Yeah, I know. People listening will probably until until it's revealed that the boy until he, he quote unquote kills the quote unquote boy. That's a line they haven't crossed before, and that was that's what makes this night different. But I don't. I think this has played out in other forms. Oh, 
Martha, when's our son coming home? Never mind. No, no, I want to know. You brought it out into the open. When's he coming home, Martha? I said, never mind. I'm sorry I brought it up. Him up, not it. You brought him up. Well, more or less. When's the little bugger going to appear? I mean, isn't tomorrow meant to be his birthday or something? I don't want to talk about it. But Martha... I don't want to talk about it. I bet you don't. I also think that there is a degree to which, like, he says something in there, you know, this is... I'm familiar with how this goes. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty clear that they've been through some version of this rodeo before. Um, But when he tells her by the car, I'm numbed enough that I can take you when I'm alone, like, it really seems like he's coming out and saying... I'm used to this this game that we play, this dance that we do, but on this particular night, I'm sick of it. And you see from the very beginning of the story, he warns her over and over and over. It's too far this time. Like, mm. don't do not do this. Don't go this far. You've been warned. Like, they, they say you've been warned so many times. Well, how would you describe, though, these two marriages? You know, what, what do we learn about them throughout the uh, course of the evening? I kept thinking that the younger couple was in the process of becoming the older couple. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could even see them kind of growing into those roles, even over the course of that evening. You can kind of, uh, they were kind of staring at their future. The the young couple reminded me more of the, the couple in 45 years, which I know we'll talk about later, but they were very careful with each other, sort of dodging the truth, making sure that things were, you know, in order all the time. And then George and Martha are just pure id. Which, But again, I agree that they're functional. I think that was the more functional marriage. The movie ends and I can see them continuing on in this sort of twisted game. But I can't, I couldn't see Nick and Honey sort of working out what had just happened because they weren't really being fully honest with each other at all. I, I think the portrait of marriage that's presented is this black hole of dysfunction. But if you can acknowledge that and then make a game out of it, then you'll be fine. Uh, as they say, like, relax and sink into it, as Martha says. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the, the film isn't terribly optimistic about the institution <laughs> of marriage and is, is trying to make some sort of statement to that effect. But the, the interesting thing, again, we will get into this more with, with 45 years, but there is this kind of original sin or this, this really core issue that is in their past that is really at the, the, the heart of their relationship that is a big, big problem that is not going to go away um, and then is going to continue to sort of fester throughout the course of their relationship, however long that relationship lasts. Um, I feel like with... George and Martha, it's a very contentious relationship, but it's settled, and there's a line crossed during this night, but it, it, it's also a settled relationship. It's a dynamic that's that's been that's been playing out for quite some time, and they know each other really well, and, they, and there are also plenty of times throughout the evening where they're co-conspirators and, and take a certain amount of, like, devious pleasure through, through you know, about uh, through the whole ordeal. Um, so I think you almost, I do feel like of the two marriages, uh, I feel more optimistic about <laughs> about George and Martha at the end of the night mm-hmm. than, than Nick and Honey for sure. I don't know. I mean, to me, and maybe it's just, you know, the desperate clawing for some optimism at the end of the story. I I feel like the night has is going to be like the make or break situation for Nick and Honey. I feel like they come out of it seeing what they could become. And I mean, fundamentally what this movie says about marriages is that they are for producing children and that if you don't produce children in a marriage, it's going to become terribly, terribly toxic because you're left alone with each other with no purpose. I mean, that's fundamentally what's what's wrong with both of their relationships is this disappointment over the, the American dream feeling that they're supposed to settle down and have kids, that that's the purpose of their relationship. And in both cases, it didn't work out for, you know, apparently fairly similar, but not the same reasons. And you have that moment at the end, well, towards the end, where Martha's describing their fictional child and Honey says, I want a child. 
I want a baby, which is very clearly a new thing for her, like a new thing that has potentially entered this relationship. And it's entered out of this horrible, toxic situation. Who knows if she'll remember it the next morning or if it'll change her terror of motherhood. But it does seem like something that's presented, you know, first as she's been going behind her husband's back in order to not have children. Now she's declared that she wants children. If anything keeps them from becoming George and Martha down the line, it's not having to pretend around that horrible issue. That's interesting. I don't know if I took it that exact way of that a marriage is dependent on producing children and that was the ultimate message. I thought it was more there was this stress around the idea of the American dream that they were all grappling with and do we have to live up to it? Is it something that we have to do? And, you know, there were different obviously very different takes on it, what with Honey not wanting to and Martha having this delusion about her son. But I don't know that I took it as like that was sort of the the underscore at the end. Like if you don't have kids, you're going to end up, you know, dying (laughs) alone in this horrible house, killing each other. But that now that you say that, it it is even more depressing (laughs) somehow. But I think if you look at the film as an examination of marriage as an institution, I think it does offer itself as that you know if you think about a traditional marriage that is the purpose of of a marriage i think to have children that is a, that in a traditional marriage that is what something you are trying to do and you know the the failure to do so is can be difficult to, to reconcile with and there's also the thing too about george and his professional failings too Oof. in the way that the mm-hmm. the role that he's supposed to play is the promise of young history professor who is going to rise to the top and just was not able to do it mm-hmm. um, that also was a failing and that also changes the dynamic of the, of the marriage changes the the roles that george and martha expect to play and you know and, and causes all kinds of uh, stress and humiliation um, constant stress and humiliation he's reduced to houseboy status uh you know even you know even if, if he wasn't suffering from impotence i'd say he was still kind of the houseboy in that in that in that relationship because he has failed to live up to her expectations and her father's expectations and his own expectations yeah even if he's not physically impotent he's you know professionally impotent and that's as bad in her eyes mm. and the way he behaves he's, he's definitely sort of the the passive aggressor and in, in that uh in that that relationship most of the time kind of you know kind of skulking in within himself well and then he then the whole thing with the gun Right, the gun, gun. <laughs> that is. Uh, was it? You don't need any props. Is that what, what she says to, to Nick? You don't need props, do you, right. big boy, or something like that? <laughs> Ouch. Where do you get one of those? What are the, one of the, one of, one of the, a shotgun that is an umbrella? <laughs> <It's> an umbrella. <laughs> I, that that is that was that's pretty Alaska terrifying because it's a. <laughs> yeah. Obama would just Obama would just take it away. <laughs> our prop, our prop shotguns. No, he'd be down. Shotguns. He'd be down. Uh, he likes a joke. No, there's that, that moment where you think the, the play slash movie is going to end like 20 I minutes in. Something. I was never so frightened in my life. Weren't you frightened just for a second? Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Oh, now I bet you were. Did you really think I was going to kill you, Martha? You kill me. That's a laugh. Well, no, I might someday. You know, Albie's play is really upfront about its symbolism i mean the characters are named george and martha you know you know it has it has devices like like the the umbrella shooting shotgun um you know it has lots of double entendres it's trying to make a pretty large statement about america itself it's not you know a naturalistic film or play by any means i mean was that something you had to kind of reconcile with what, what do you make of the performances in this film it's big i mean i and taylor especially is it's really big and i don't mean that as a criticism but i mean it is it is she 
evokes Betty Davis with her first line, and I think she evokes Betty Davis with her devouring everything in the room performance, and and uh, it works. Uh, it's it's an interesting contrast with with her and and, and Burton, and and I I'm not as well versed in their other pairings as I probably should be, but based on having seen Cleopatra, and I'm sure I've seen at least one of their film with both of them in it, it, it is a they balance each other out here better than I than than elsewhere. I think I just love how she sort of chews up and spits out the lines over and over again and different each way. I, he's in the math department. He's in the math department. Like she just says the same things over. I'm just like some serious Sanford Meisner <laughs> stuff going on here. And I love Sandy Dennis so much because she's so it, it kind of brings out a, a very sort of bad. At least I felt really sort of repulsed by her by the end of the movie, which I felt bad about. I was like, why am I repulsed by her? Because she's weak. And that's so horrible of me. But she's really good at really doing a really bad job of feigning strength and actually just projecting total vulnerability and weakness and and being like almost the worst parody stereotype of a, of a 1950s woman. There are points in the film where I really thought Nichols was kind of trying to make her seem a lot cannier than she is. Like there's mm-hmm. that really telling moment where they're downstairs talking about her hips, among other things. And she's standing at the top of the stairs, like listening with just this this kind of it's not quite a steely expression on her face, but it's set like it's not open and it's not vulnerable. And then she comes down and immediately starts like, you know, playing the dits again. And there there were points where I felt like her purposefully egging on one or the other of George and Martha mm. um, over the, the objections of her husband. There, there are a number of places where he's like, let's leave or shut up. And she says, no, let them go on. And I, I get the feeling early on before before the brandy really kicks in, she's kind of playing the part of diffusing, the, trying to diffuse the situation. Right. Like like she's been trained as sort of the perfect 50s, early 60s uh, woman to, to like reduce conflict and like, you know, make everything nice. And I, mm-hmm. I she does that and then, then fails to do that after a certain point. And, and the drunker she gets. Right, right, right. Yeah, you can actually see both her and Nick doing that a little bit when they first arrive and there's a fight and things are awkward. Like both of them are very much trying to play you know, good guests and like his commentary on the painting, which uh, George just completely upends. I, I love this film. I love I love the <laughs> dynamics of this film so much. I love the the constant switchbacks of kind of who's ascendant and who's in charge, you know, who's trying to retreat. The, and the performances are just so much a part of that. You know, there are points in this film where Taylor goes too far for me, like the roadhouse thing where she's just shrieking out the George's backstory about the novel. Like, I really think that that scene could stand to be toned down a good bit. But for the most part, like just their the sheer viciousness that comes into her and Burton's like vocal expressions as they're talking to each other, sell what can in some in some ways be like repetitive or like very performative silly lines at times. I love the Taylor performance in this. I love Taylor. I like, all, all the performances are great, but I do like the bigness of that performance, particularly in the first third, which is really when the dialogue is 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 popping. And uh, and again, that dynamic between Taylor, who's so aggressive and and, and withering, and and Burton, who's just kind of almost uh, doing the the rope a dope or whatever. He's just kind of he seems he's he got the passive aggressive thing happening too, and it's just it's just so lively. And, and it fascinating. What fascinates me about it too. This fascinates me just generally about relationships and marriage is just the tenor of a relationship, the way that people talk to each other, which if you are Nick and Honey and you're going into this 
this place. It's it's shocking the the sort of violence that is coming out in that in the way these uh, the George and Martha talk to each other. But if you're in that relationship, if you are George and Martha, and this is the way you talk to each other, that's a whole different thing, you know. Whereas, and and I think we can see on the other end of that with Nick and Honey, there's a subtle coded ways in which they inflict pain on each other which which do not rise to the level of the volume i guess that george and martha have together that they speak to each other in a subtler more gentle way seeming way anyway but but can inflict their own verbal violence it's just done it just has to do with the tenor of their relationship and the way they normally talk to each other i mean one of the things i think is so interesting about their pairing is just this sense that what I see going on with with the honey performance, part of that that canniness is just a feeling that Nick is controlling in a lot of ways. Like he kind of herds her around from time to time and tries to shut her down. And I feel like she walked into this dynamic and she's like, oh, it can be like this, where I can <laughs> say whatever I want and I can tell you I'm going to dance and you're going to leave me alone. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to drink more if I feel like it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to throw up and I'm not going to feel guilty about it. It's like she sees a certain freedom in the way George and Martha interact mm-hmm. and she doesn't yet see the problem with it like until until the end of the movie and like on and off in moments throughout she doesn't see the toxicity she just sort of sees this like expressiveness that's something she hasn't seen before i mean why do they stay i mean it's i mean there are there are points where they could they could bail and they want to bail and i guess they're uh they get beckoned back in it's like oh come on you know stay for another drink but you do you feel like is is that are they attracted to to this i mean do they do you know you drink enough maybe you do kind of want to have it out a little bit or you want to explore this and explore talking to each other in this way that you haven't before. Um, so maybe there's something exciting about it. Yeah, I think it's kind of the same reason that George and Martha stay in the marriage. It's mm. just sort of, it's magnetic and fascinating and messed up and twisted. But And there are these moments, my, my favorite moments between them is when they're kind of bizarrely sweet to each other. Like he, she says, you're going bald. And he says, so are you. And then they just fall down laughing on the bed together. And then, you know, I love when he comes up with, with the end to her line. So she'll say, you know, George hates daddy because of his own, and he says, inadequacies. You know, he volunteers <laughs> the end of the insult. Or you haven't got the guts. You know, he helps her He helps her insult him, which is, I just thought that was kind of delightful. Yeah. Yeah, that moment in the bed early on is so key because you just, you see them, like, they walk in the door and they immediately start ripping on each other. And it's like, oh, these are horrible horrible toxic people who hate each other and then they just they fall into sync and they start mm-hmm. laughing together and it's like oh wait no i i don't know what's going on here mm-hmm. and that makes the rest of the story interesting which is you why no right which is why i think nick and honey partly stay too because they're like do they hate each other do they love each other what is this you know that I- said there's a lot of contrivance in the film where like he's ready to go but she's upstairs throwing up that's true or like she's sick and is ready to go but he's just coming back from outside with george and thinks he has the advantage again and that like they're bonding in a way that's going to be important to his career mm-hmm. or they need a ride home because honey's sick or they need a ride home because honey's sick again like over and over part of what draws them back in is contrivance and need and i think i'll be really smart about that you two you and your wife you, you seem to be having some sort of a, a, a martha and i are having nothing martha and i are merely exercising that's all we're merely walking what's left of our wits don't pay any attention to it still i thought well, now let's sit down and talk huh you know i just want kind of wanted to to ask if you have any favorite moments or lines i mean there's so many in the film uh, that wanted to isolate a few. What, Keith, do you bring you? Have you know, actually, one of my favorite moments is very early on. It's a lovely opening scene and them walking, kind of talking to each other along the campus and you have the Alex Norris score. And, it's, and there's not a lot of music in this, but what is 
in it is used really effectively. And I had never really heard Alex North be that tender. I always think of him as the Spartacus guy, sort of the big, big, grandiose, epic theme guy. And, and this is, you know, really nice. And then they cut to walking in the door, lights on, and then these two bedraggled, clearly way past the line of intoxication pe- people and just the looks on their faces. And this is, this is, this is the base level. You're like, this is as good as it's going to get for these characters throughout the film. And like, I like this, this is very much like it is, as Scott said, kind of, kind of strap in. <laughs> this is, this is, this is going to be a rough ride kind of, kind of evening. Uh, Rachel, what about you? Well, that scene I just mentioned, I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. but I also like when he explains what's going on very succinctly. Uh, we're merely exercising, just walking what's left of our wits as a way of explaining <laughs> what's going on, which is so simple and so messed up. <laughs> I, I was thinking about this question as I was rewatching the film and just like, I want to, I want to answer with like half of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. A couple of that really stand out for me is... I hope you don't take my line. Well, the, go ahead. There's the point where uh, Martha starts like very unsubtly expressing her sexual interest in Nick. And it's like, you know, oh, you've kept up your your body. You know, you're still doing your sports thing. And Honey says just very acidly, yes, he has a very firm body. (laughs) (laughs) And in that moment, she's like, she's expressing her control and like her, her possessiveness and her insidership in their relationship. But she's also judging Martha. Like she's saying, I see what you're doing. Like I may be ditzy and drunk, but I'm not stupid. Get your fricking claws off my man. (laughs) So I love that moment. Um, The whole exchange around whether or whether or not Nick was able to consummate the act. Oh, him can't. Him too full of booze. (laughs) Like is a great line. But so so is uh, you're certainly a flop in some departments. And then Nick coming back with I'm not the house boy. For a movie that was so controversial about its language, some of the coded stuff around sex is is way more interesting. Yeah. Oh, God. And the non-coded stuff. The moment where uh, <laughs> Nick is talking about um, his, like, avenues into the politics in the university. Oh, I got that. I got that. I got the line exactly. All right, say you it. You have to tell me because that was the one I was worried you were to steal from me. Which say is, it. Which is, I bet your wife has the widest, most inviting avenue <laughs> on the whole damn campus. <laughs> which, that that is one of those lines that, it's not a double entendre. It's a single entendre until he backs up and explains to us why it's a double entendre. <laughs> I, was, I was talking about her father and, and yeah. I, okay, I'm not just talking about her anatomy, yeah. but he has to take it back. <laughs> just one last thing. The exchange at the end where Nick says, I don't know when you people are lying or what. And George and Martha come together and like, no, you're damn right. You don't. You're not supposed to. I mean, that is just such a both a beautiful moment of them coming together and an upending of the entire film, because all of a sudden you realize, no, you all you have to go on in any of this is their word. And as soon as they both agree that some of the things they've been saying are false, you know, that not you can't necessarily trust what Martha's been saying about George or vice versa. Or what George has been saying about himself. Like, yeah. I really do not know exactly what his his story is, mm-hmm. like how much of that is is his actual life story, how much it is, you know, his creative uh, fictionalization of his, of his past. I, I have no idea. That's the most important exchange in the film, in my view. When she says, truth or illusion, George, you don't know the difference. And he says, no, but we must carry on as though we did. I feel like that kind of gets the heart of, 
I guess that the issue involving the boy, I guess, but just the marriage in, in general. I mean, that, that kind of it feels like what the, the, the line that the film, whole film has sort of been leading to. That one's in my notes, too. And in part, it's because I think it's the best delivered line in the entire film. No, it's it's cru- crucial. And it's also it gets to some of my favorite bits in the film. Uh, one one that line we already talk, talked about. I, I also like the little bit where uh, Martha starts calling George swampy. <laughs> Uh, I think that was pretty a bog. great. A bog, swampy, um, and then when when George t- first tells that story about the the boy who ordered uh, Bergen and water, you know, who shot his mother and killed his father and laughed into the asylum. I mean, it's just, it does feel like, um, and, and of course, when we learn more about that later and about his novel, you know, that we do sort of question what of any of it is true and what how it really relates to you know, how much of it is his story how much of it is is fiction but but this the delivery of that story is is riveting to us as it is to to Nick who's listening to it um I also really like the coda to this film which isn't which I isn't maybe a little short of hopeful but there is there is dawn in this film and 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 there is something sort of intimate about that and resigned and in, in about that final scene that leaves you feeling a little bit more optimistic about this this marriage than you might have been earlier in the evening i feel like part of that is just when george boots nick and honey like they've been using them as an audience they've been using them as weapons against each other they've been using them as cushions in order to avoid each other they've been using them as shields and then all of a sudden he's just like we're done go and he's like uh okay but i want to say no go and it's just like we don't need you anymore we're here with each other and that's all we need well i'm sure we'll be get into that and many other things later in our forum but for now uh we wanted to get into a little bit of feedback you know before closing out the first half of this week's show, we got lots of feedback for our Star Wars pairings. As it turns out, people have opinions about Star Wars. We could only pick a few of many. So, uh, Tasha, uh, why don't you kick us off? Well, sure. Um, this one's from Jesse, who has some thoughts on the bridge scene between Kylo Ren and Han Solo in The Force Awakens. Spoilers, guys. I definitely enjoyed The Force Awakens the first time I saw it, though I got the feeling that I was watching something akin to Star Wars' greatest hits, for better or for worse. Like a couple of you, I did find that I appreciated it more the second time around, as I was able to pay more attention to the new characters and appreciate their relationships and banter in the second pass. My main comment is regarding the Kylo Han Solo confrontation on the bridge. Like Genevieve, I immediately knew something bad was about to happen, and instantly aware of the obvious Empire Strikes Back callback that J.J. Abrams was going for. That said, I think that what made the moment what really worked for me was Chewie's reaction, which was one of pure rage slash heartbreak. It actually rang more true to me than the iconic New Hope scene where Luke watches Darth Vader cut down Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is yet another callback moment that you could point out. Granted, TFA doesn't really do much with Chewbacca after that incident, or explore any closure, really, but I have to say that the moment was really affecting. To borrow a line from film spotting's Adam Kempinar, it got a little dusty in the theater. I couldn't help it. Perhaps the impact was greater than the Luke-Obi-Wan scenario because fans of the original trilogy had a lot more time getting to know Han and Chewie as an inseparable duo, and the finality of the separation seems much greater. It's doubtful that the ghost of Han Solo is going to show up in future episodes. I don't know. He might. So, (laughs) no? (laughs) Well, you know, George Lucas will retake control of the films and, like, put him in after the fact in, like, later editions. Uh, Really, yeah, once again, yeah, the ghost of... uh, of uh, Hayden Christensen will show up again. Or whoever the cast is, young Han Solo will just get kind of uh, kind of uh, CGI in the future. <laughs> I'm really excited about the special special editions of uh, the Force Awakens. Um, so a, a reader named Scott 
which really <laughs> great name, great name, wrote uh, a great Scott, <laughs> great Scott wrote a, a a quite long email about uh, the two Star Wars episodes. But I wanted to focus on this passage about why people responded so strongly to George Lucas's original film. Keith, could you read that for us? I can. Regarding the appeal of A New Hope and why it struck such a chord with audiences, I think the factors mentioned were certainly part of the reason. A more accessible kind of science fiction that relied more on the fiction than the science, portrayed in cutting-edge special effects for the time. I think there were two other factors, the first being Harris Ford, who was really the fan favorite over Luke for most kids who grew up with the original trilogy. His career and box office success following the film need no explanation, but his impact on the film itself is undeniable. The movie is interesting before the cantina, but it takes off once Han arrives. His shooting of Greedo first, yes, first, made him an anti-hero almost instantly, while his cynicism against the Force and Obi-Wan made us all even bigger believers when the old man disappeared and started somehow teaching Luke through the afterlife. The other factor is the nature of Luke's arc, which speaks to just about anyone, looking at one situation, feeling stuck, and hoping for a greater cause. Luke went from being trapped to being a hero. Some may view it as he found religion and that made him a better person. Others will dismiss the religious overtones and simply say he went on to become a skilled warrior. Whatever your perspective, it works across multiple levels and speaks to many people's needs in their own lives to pursue a better station and purpose in life. I mean, I think that's true, although I also think Han Solo was a favorite because he's fun. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's the humor source, whereas Luke is kind of the source of uh, frustration and earnestness, especially in New Hope. I'll say also, Han was not my guy as a kid. No, I was, Luke I was a Luke Skywalker no, 100%. guy. I, didn't, I, didn't, I, I, was, I didn't necessarily trust Han Solo. He, he didn't seem like a totally good guy. <laughs> no, that, that's that's critical. I mean, and, and that's been my experience with showing the films to my daughter is that she connects to heroes, period. Mm-hmm. And, and Han confuses her and what, yeah. he, and what he's doing and what he he's done and what he's doing the cantina and and his whole attitude is baffling to her i mean i find that a, like a fascinating dynamic because for me like watching new hope for the first time as a little kid han solo was a grown-up who he had his own ship he had his uh, his best friend he had a career that made him exciting luke was exactly like where i was he was mm. a kid he like adults run ran roughshod over him and told him what to do um and then he never he didn't get control of the situation in any meaningful way um until the very end of the film so you kind of feel him growing up and that's exciting but like han solo was like the sophisticate of the film for me as a mm. as a small kid i also like revisiting it before um Force Awakens. I, I like I like the relationship between Luke and Han. I think it's very nicely developed. Even even in Jedi, where a lot of relationships get a little bit short shrift, uh, there's still elements of of what made it interesting in the first couple of films. And I guess if there's one disappointment to the Force Awakens, is we we won't see the end of that. We won't see that friendship go any further. Finally, we wanted to share a note from uh, Marion, who commented on the many callbacks to the original Star Wars in the Force Awakens. Rachel, yes, it's your turn. Marion writes, thinking about all the affectionate callbacks in A Force Awakens that you lot mentioned. Are you British, Marion? <laughs> Franchise reboots always seem to plug in slightly over-the-top reverence for the original movie. Ray hands the famed lightsaber to Luke, even though she's revealed as being innate, more innately powerful. Jurassic World trots out the T-Rex to defeat the I-Rex, even though the entire film was about this Frankenstein monster who dominates... Sigh, everything. The new Star Trek franchise appeared incapable of charting its own course without OG Spock to the detriment of any kind of space-time continuity. Scream 4 even has the original star explicitly tell her explicit would-be usurper, don't F with the original. 
On the one hand, it could just be a respectful impulse that doubles as fan service for the older generations who loved the originals. But on the other, it feels like some intergenerational disdain slash attempt at dominance, older generations essentially telling younger ones that their stories are automatically inferior, less resonant, and capable of standing on their own. I don't know that I agree with that second observation about older generations versus younger generations. I think it's more fan service slash acknowledging the thing that made the money. But I think there's a really, really interesting observation. And especially that list is really convincing to me. I think it's kind of two different dynamics, too, where it is, there's a torch passing in Star Wars and Star Trek. And I actually like the scene OG Spock in uh, the first Star Trek movie, at least. Uh, second one felt a little excessive. But, but the but the, the T-Rex versus I-Rex and, and, and uh, the Nev Campbell versus Emma Roberts and, and Scream 4, those are two different things where it's sort of the, the past, as you argue, kind of kind of asserting its dominance over, over the future. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we should say, maybe maybe in the next Jurassic World movie the, there'll be more of a, a torch passing between uh, different uh, dinosaurs. But those little arms, those little T Rex arms, they can't pass anything, right? They're just <laughs> uh, if you if you if you. I guess you can't see what I'm doing here, but I'm with my <laughs> arms. It's really convincing. If you could picture Scott doing little T Rex arms as he goes rrr, of I'm course scared. you can picture that. It is scary. Um, <laughs> actually, I guess it's the least scary thing about the T Rex is those little those little like arms. Okay, anyway, the, the, so that's make some. Angrier though, <laughs> just feeds into their sense of invention. It's true. Yeah. It's true. They get they they're very sensitive about the about the little arms. All right. So uh, we always appreciate hearing from our listeners, and we'd love to hear more from you about this episode and the episodes to come. To share your thoughts about who's afraid of Virginia Wolf or Forty Five Years or both, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on our website. That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. On the second half of this week's conversation, we'll bring 45 years into the discussion and talk about how its depiction of a fraught marriage compares to that of Virginia Woolf. That'll be out in a few days, and you'll get to hear this. I want to read this room correctly. We have two female contributors here who want the focus to be more on the men. Yep. No, I want, <laughs> I want the dead woman. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Next Picture Pod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember, there isn't an Abomination Award going that you haven't won. Stop,